0: Thank you for downloading or watching our sermon series titled Redeemed in Christ. We're going through the Heidelberg Catechism. The Catechism is written in 1563 using a question and answer format. The Catechism's goal is to instruct the Lord's people to understand the Reformed faith by answering common questions from the scripture. Please join us as we walk through this historic document and ponder the Lord's grace and mercy as we are reminded that we are redeemed in Christ. When we talk about the scriptures and people ask us about the Word of God, there's always a temptation to see the Old Testament and New Testament as pitted against each other. You know, we can think back in church history, we think of Marcion, who believed that the God of creation was an evil God who created tyranny and was a tyrant, Jesus Christ enters history to defeat him, right? Now, we say this is a heresy, and that's going to the extreme. But we can also have a mindset of saying, well, how do these testaments really relate? Are they really holding out the same gospel? We can think of a system in our more contemporary day and age we refer to as dispensationalism, where we say that God deals with his people in different times, different epochs, with different plans, And so again, it's seeing a series of interruptions in the plan of God rather than one continuous message or one consistent gospel. And so as we consider this, we might say, well then, what is our catechism teaching us regarding, A, the significance of Christ being God and man? And also, what is it teaching us regarding these two testaments, Old and New Testament, relating to each other? So as we consider this, we'll see that he is one mediator, He is God and man, and lastly, he is the one gospel. And so that's basically taking Hebrews and wrapping this up. So in terms of this, uh, he is the one mediator. We say that he is God and man being the one mediator. uh, We're moving uh, from uh, question and answer 15, moving into question and answer 16. uh, That we understand that a mediator is one who goes between God and goes between man. Uh, we, can think of, uh, we can think of the priests, we can think of the prophets uh, doing this very thing. Now, in terms of, of this mediator, why do we have a mediator? Why do we need a mediator? Well, as we see the typology or the anticipations in the Old Testament, the models, the patterns, whatever you want to say, where we have those pictures painted for us in church history or covenant history, We have that picture there. We have first Moses is the one who is a prophet, Exodus 34. But he's also the one in the context of the golden calf who mediates between God and man. God's upset that man's created a calf. Man's fallen into false worship. Moses reminds God of the promises of of what the Lord has made in the Exodus and what the Lord has done. And so you see Moses being sort of a mediator there. He's going between God and man. Uh, calling to God's attention, God's words, and we have the Lord's wrath abated. We think also of the priest. And when we think of a priest, we see there that somebody sins or there's sin in the community. Uh, The priest is one who determined whether someone can be back in uh, the context of the covenant community. If they have leprosy, it goes away. The priest says you're clean. You can once again worship with God's people. Uh, They're the ones that make the sacrifices. You know, the pointing to Christ and his coming, uh, but the shedding of blood, showing that God is angry with sin. Sin needs to be taken away. Blood needs to be shed. And so when we talk about the work of a prophet and a priest in terms of this mediation, we think of the prophet coming from God, coming to man, right? He's taking the word from heaven, bringing it to man. The priest is taking the, the sin of this world, making a sacrifice, and bringing it to God. And so you see how that's showing that picture of Christ, the Word of God coming from heaven, uh, being the action of God, the sacrifice, taking away our sins, and presenting that uh, before the Heavenly Father. Now, when we think about these mediators in the Old Covenants, because one of the things the Catechism wants to teach us is Christ's perfection. We can think of priests, we can think of prophets, we can think of kings. Uh, that were less than faithful, and some that were more faithful. You know, we think of, for instance, Balaam the prophet. He did bring the word of God. Uh, Nevertheless, we would not consider him a faithful prophet. Uh, We can see the same thing with priests. We think of Eli and his sons. Some were faithful, some not. And so that's an important thing when we're coming to Hebrews and we're understanding this mediatorial, or the Christ as our mediator, uh, going between God and man. As Christ fulfills this role, he is perfection. Uh, He is the one who has done this perfectly. And so now when when we turn to Hebrews and we look at this, we remember and recall, as we've said before, one of the struggles going on in this church is struggling with the significance of Christ. They want the tangible religion. Uh, We've said this before, but they like the sacrifices. And we can understand, you sin. You bring an animal, you see the life snuffed out of the animal. There's a very visible presentation. My goodness, sin is heinous in the sight of God. I've seen an animal give its life. I walk away forgiven. So you have a very tangible, visible presentation of redemption. It's called to your attention. You see death and you see it quite vividly. But now we, we have this, this claim that the author of Hebrews is setting in the stage. He wants us to understand that we're actually in a better arrangement possessing Christ Jesus. Now this, this community, this church is going to think, well, that's absurd. How, how can we say it's better to possess Christ? We had Moses. We had the prophets. We had the priests. We had the tangible religion. We had the temple and the ideal. We can look at a king on a throne. How can you say that Christ Jesus is the one who is ultimately superior well, going through this and skipping down to verse 2, he tells us that in these last days, he is spoken by his Son. Now, this declaration of declaring by his Son is telling us that this one revelation, this one action of God is superior to all things. Notice that through this Son, it is through the Son he has created the world, superior to the angels as we have in these citations. So it seems that maybe in this church, they might be struggling with some sort of angel worship, uh, some sort of tension with the spiritual world and wondering the significance of Christ over the angels. Whatever the case, the author is making a very explicit case, Christ is superior. Christ is an heir of all things. The world's been created through him. He's superior to the angels. So it's important to, to understand that arrangement right here. Now, in terms of Christ being superior to the angels, notice, as this is called to our attention in 1 verse 4, uh, he's become much superior to the angels. We have 1 verse 5, for which of the angels did he ever say? So he goes through the Old Testament, shows these citations. Going on, uh, 1 verse 6, where he gives a command for the angels to actually worship the Son, which tells us who Christ is as mediator, being superior Uh, We have a reference back to Deuteronomy 33, it seems, uh, with the Holy Ones being present in the mediation. Uh, They were not the ones who brought the law. They're just present there, showing God's angelic presence uh, with the mediation of the Mosaic Covenant in Deuteronomy 33. But again, Christ being superior. Christ himself, then, having this superiority, is, is the author of Hebrews setting the stage right in the introduction, saying, believe Jesus Christ is greater than the angels. He is the one who goes between us and God, setting the stage for the priest work uh, that you have in Hebrews 7, Hebrews 9, making the case right here, Christ is all we need sufficient. So right there, when, when we hear that, we can also find the language here of the creation being created through Christ, making a reference, and probably has John 1, verse uh, 1, or 1 through uh, John 1, 1, 1 through 14, with a prologue of John's gospel. Again, that, that notion of, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Sort of in, in the backdrop of his mind, the superiority of Christ through and through. So this leaves us then to the next question in the Catechism. How do we know that Christ is God and man? We know we have a superior mediator. The angels worship him. He's, he's attributed as being God. But how do we know he really is God and man? Why is that so important? Well, the Catechism in answer 17 wants us to understand as it builds on 16. He's the one who enters history. He's the one that has to be God. He's the one that has to be God and man, 17 and 18, because no mere creature can take our offense. As we mentioned last time, you know, we, we can die, we can endure hell, And we can bear the punishment of God for eternity for ourselves. But that sanction never ends. And I can't bear the punishment or the eternal punishment on behalf of another. I can't say, well, I'll take it for me and for someone else. That's not sufficient. I can only endure the consequences of this punishment upon myself. That's the argument the catechism is saying. It has to be man, man creature that offends has to be God who can take an eternal sanction or punishment. So now when, when we get to Hebrews 1, it becomes a little technical, but it's very important to understand this. If you look at 1 verse 3, there's two words that are used here. You have radiance, and then you have this phrase which, which is the exact imprint of his nature. It's actually a commentary on a Greek word. It's an appropriate commentary. I I agree with that translation. But the two words that are really used there in the original language or Greek are radiance and character. And so when we look at these words, it's important to understand what these words mean. Again, you think of a Jehovah Witness knocking on your door, uh, believing that Jesus Christ is the first creation. As Jesus is the first creation... Uh, There's glory of God that's kind of there, but he's not God, is what a Jehovah Witness would say to you. So this is a verse that's important to keep in your mind if you interact with a Jehovah Witness. Now, as I mentioned, there's some technicalities here. I'll try and make it as simple as I humanly can. When we talk about this radiance, there's two ways a radiance can be used in the original language, and, and this translates into English. The first way is we can think of radiance as a shining of light. So if you remember, um, kids, I'm sure you have. I know I've done it, still do, because I'm a child at heart. But you take a flashlight and you shine it in a mirror, and you can watch the light bounce around, right? So you're seeing that reflection, the radiance of the light going into the mirror, reflecting, and you can make it shine in different places. If you have a cat, you can do the same thing with a laser pointer, right? You can shine it in the mirror and make the... Laser pointers shine all over the ground. That's one way this word is used. It's used in a reflection of the glory. It's not the flashlight. It's not the laser pointer. It's merely a reflection of it. So if we took that translation, we would say that Jesus Christ is merely reflecting God's glory. Uh, This would be an understanding that Jesus Christ is a first creation who reflects or shows God's glory but the glory of God isn't really in Christ. So that's one translation. Jehovah Witness is going to take that translation and throw that at you. Now another translation of this word is where you can behold the flashlight itself, right? That is the glory. That is the radiance, if you will. That's the light. It's not a reflection of the light. The light is intrinsic to the flashlight. It's part of what it is. And that's another translation we can have here. And this is important because if Christ merely reflects the glory of God, he's not God. If the glory is intrinsic or a part of who Christ is, then he is God. Because the same glory that makes up God makes up Christ. Now I just sort of have to assert, and you have to trust me at this point, that grammatically, the way it's used, it has to be that the radiance or the glory is in Christ. He's not reflecting it, it's in Christ. So if a Jehovah Witness comes to you, that's an answer you say. Actually, there's two ways you can take this word. The way you're taking it, that is a way you can translate it. But grammatically in the Greek, it's actually teaching us that this glory is intrinsic to Christ. He is God. Now the next word, which I already kind of showed my hand with the exact imprint of his nature. I, I love that translation. It's a proper way of understanding it. But from the Greek, it comes... Uh, or it's where we get character in English. Now this comes across very well in English, right? Uh, we can talk about a character sketch. Uh, so this would be a drawing, a, a picture of what something would be. It's, it's not the person, it's a picture of the person. And that's a way you can understand this, that, it's, that Christ is merely a picture of God. That's one way. And so we would say, yes, this is a character sketch, a comic book if you will. You draw a series of pictures, a series of images of individuals. It's not really the individual, it's just a picture of them. So this, of course, would mean that Christ is merely a picture of God, not God, just a picture of God. Now, the other way that we use character in English and it comes across, we can say, oh, that individual is a character. And the way we say that, if we're saying it kind of smirking, you think, oh, well, this is a individual that's intrinsic to his person, he's kind of funny. Comes into a room, probably makes you laugh. He's an entertaining sort of individual. Uh, you would say, I don't know how that, or I know how that individual will act because I know his character. So if you say, I wonder what he's going to do. Well, according to his character, he's going to react this way. And so we, we understand there's something intrinsic to the person as to how they will act because it's part of who they are. And so when, when we take this understanding of Christ, Again, grammatically, it's the same. We have to look at the context to understand what it means. So if we understand that radiance means that it's the fullness of God's glory in Christ, it means that the character of God, the essence of who God is, is in Christ. And so this means that Christ is God in man. Now, if a Jehovah Witness comes in and says, oh, but again, you're just saying this because your pastor said so. Well, look at the argument of the text. If you look at verse 3, What does he do? He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Do angels do that? Do creatures do that? Can you uphold the universe by your power? Can a mere mortal do this? Even the angels, when when we read of them in scripture, even in Daniel's visions, they're doing the will of God. They're they're not upholding the universe, they're they're doing what God commands them to do. They're following his will. They do not uphold the, the universe. We have also the understanding. He makes a purification for sins. And so here we we have an understanding of the significance of Christ. He makes a purification of sins. He's offering himself. Again, the author of Hebrews, uh, when you read Hebrews, there's introductions of concepts, and then there's a development of the concepts. So right here, he's already introducing the concept of a Melchizedekian priest. Priest has no beginning of days, no end of days a priest who is eternal. And it's important to understand that description of Christ through Hebrews because this is something else to point out to a, a Jehovah Witness. Their view of Christ is Christ is the first creation. some point, father gets lonely, creates Christ, Christ comes into existence. Well, that radically contradicts the description of Christ right here, contradicts what the author of Hebrews develops of Christ. And so it, it contradicts the whole flow of the text. And so these words have to mean that the glory of God resides in Christ. The character, the attributes, the makeup of God resides in Christ. This means he is the God-man. He is the one, as we heard in verse 2, created the world, the one who shows the power and majesty of what was promised. And so in terms of this, we understand the intrinsic nature of Christ, who he is. He is God. He is man who has entered history. The purpose is to make the purification of sins. And so now this leads us then to the point of, well, then why why is this significant? What do we do with these testaments? We know Christ is God and man, but but what do we do with the Old Testament? What do we do with the New Testament? Why are these important? Well, question answer 19, I love how it lays this out. And it goes through the different uh, epochs or times or different ways in which God has interacted with his people. Where do we find the gospel? Well, a lot of times we think, well, the gospels are the gospel, right? I mean, that would seem logical. They're called gospels. It would seem that's the gospel. There's truth in that. Obviously, they do have the gospel there. But the catechism wants us to understand that the gospel actually has its origination or its origin, its beginning in paradise, now, it's not to say that the covenant made with Adam is a covenant of grace. What's teaching us as Adam is in the Garden of Eden after the fall, we have there the promise of Genesis 3.15, which we've covered. And that's a promise that the Lord will triumph. The seed of the woman will triumph over the seed of the serpent. So we have in paradise, you know, the, when Adam and Eve are marching out of Eden, the patriarchs, same gospel that's ordering uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Ordering that story in Genesis leading up uh, to the Exodus that we find. Hebrews 11 lays that out, how God has been consistent throughout the ages. The prophets, the time of where the prophets come to Israel, bringing the gospel. The sacrifices, the ceremonies, it says, are even foreshadowing this gospel message. In other words, the Catechism is saying the whole Bible is teaching us the gospel. We need to understand this is about God coming to his people to bring about uh, the promise of his redemption. Now, when we consider this and and we hear this in Hebrews, we say, Okay, well then, how how do we know this? How does the author of Hebrews make this the case? Well, this is where we start running through these quotations just a little bit. We think of 1 verse 5, citing Psalm 2 verse 7. Again, that's a reminder. Christ is the Son, the Father has begotten him. Now again, Jehovah Witness will take you to this verse and say, well, what do you do with this? Well, when you think of begetting, why do we say that the Son is begotten from eternity? We say he's begotten from eternity. If you remember in Catechism, if you can think back, the thing we learn there is that the very attributes of a Father are the attributes that are given to the Son, right? And so Christ isn't created. He is the second person of the Trinity. He's the Son of God. Now, when when we look at Hebrews uh, 1, citing or verse 5, citing Psalm 2, verse 7, there's something else that's going on in terms of this uh, verse in this chapter. Because when you look at this, he spoke uh, through our fathers, by the prophets. He's spoken to us by his Son. 1, verse 3, we've already covered the Son is from eternity. Uh, He is the exact radiance, the, the very glory of God resides in the Son. The Son is the one who is also the character of God, right? The essence of who God is. Now, a Jehovah Witness will take you then to 1 verse 5 with Psalm 2 verse 7, and also looking at 1 verse 4, where he becomes a name that's higher. So what do we do with that? Well, it's important to understand the history of, of redemption, isn't it? It's important to understand that while Christ is from eternity, the second person of the Trinity, there is a time when you must enter into history and fulfill the promises of God. So the world is created through Christ. Redemption comes through Christ. He is the agent in action of God's redemption. This is where we talk about these different covenants. We talk about the Trinity being three persons from all eternity. And then we talk about a voluntary condescension in terms of the work that they do in covenant history. That's all that's going on here in Hebrews 1, 1-4, talking about that movement into history of Christ taking on the flesh. He's never setting aside a divine. He's never annulling or, or doing away with that divine nature. It's Christ taking on the flesh. What does he do in the taking on of the flesh? He comes, enters history, takes away our sins by living a perfect life, dying on the cross, and being raised. So now the point of these Old Testament references, you are my son, today I have begotten you, is again that reminder of this one coming from the Davidic promise, that there's going to be one from the line of Judah who will enter into history. There's a time when he does not take on the flesh to the time where he takes on the flesh. This is underscored where he puts in parallel or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. This comes us from 2 Samuel 7.14. If you remember the context of this promise, David desires to build a temple for God. Nathan comes to David and says, No, you're not going to build a, a temple. This is not your job. Your son's going to do this. You are the king of war. Your son's going to be the king of peace. Right? That's the ideal of how it's presented in 2 Samuel 7. And so when you have this promise of, I shall be a father, he shall be a son, Is calling to our attention that Christ enters history already promised back by David. His entrance into history is a fulfillment of this promise, exactly what God has determined to do to have the priest-king sitting upon the throne of glory. We have 1 verse 6, where again, this is a little challenging to understand exactly what's going on here, what's being cited. Uh, We think it's probably a citation of a tradition from two uh, verses and an implication of this from Psalm 97.7 and Deuteronomy 32.43. It's probably the intention where you have the spiritual powers that bow down and worship Him. Uh, We have in 1 verse 8, Psalm 45, 6 through 7, status as a son being the triumphant one. 1 verse 10, Psalm 102, 25 through 27, Again, where the Jewish people may not think of this as being an application of Christ, but nevertheless, we see how it is God and the work of Christ that is doing this very thing, laying the foundations of the earth, as he has said, the creation being made through him. Now again, we can go through this again and again. I've already called to your attention. If you want to know where these are cited, take note of the footnotes, look up the passages, and you can find the argumentation of what's going on there. Now when when we say this, it's important as I've walked through these uh, promises of the angels bowing down to Christ. Because again, a Jehovah Witness, when they come to you and say, Oh, Christ is just merely a reflection of God's radiance. Christ is merely a character sketch of God. You say, well, let's put this into context. Not even jumping ahead to Hebrews 7 from the purification of sins, which gives you the, you the, the right to do that from the text or Hebrews 9. But he said, let's look at this in the context of even what these Old Testament texts are saying. Because a Jehovah Witness would see Christ as being from the, you know, the archangel Michael. That's really who Christ is. Or at least, if you get a Jehovah Witness that's familiar with their theology, that's what they, they would present to you. So you say, okay, well, Michael's an angel, correct? Well, yes, that's what we believe. Okay, well, here we go through the Old Testament and we find that the angels actually bow down to God. And these declarations of God are not just to the Father, but this is clearly referring to the Son of God. So the author of Hebrews wants to impress upon us the significance of Christ entering history. He's not just an angel, he does not just have a glorious glow about him, he does not just appear to be God. The force is this is God who has taken on the flesh to fulfill the promises of God. Now notice then, as we look at this, God has spoke through the prophets, many prophets, right? Now it's not to to deprecate their word. He's not minimizing their word. He wants to understand there's many prophets, a variety of them speak the same word, actually gives credibility to, to the Lord's promise. But we have in the last days, he's spoken to us by his Son. We're moving from a plural testimony to a singular action. It is the son who has accomplished the work that the father has given him to do. In other words, the prophets have no credibility if there is no son who enters history. Because then the prophets are merely making assertions. They're, they're merely making claims about some redemptive promise of God. But the author of Hebrews is saying they, they weren't just making claims. This wasn't some theoretical pie-in-the-sky thing that the prophets thought up and thought, well, you know, it'd be really neat. And somehow this, this redemption came about. The author of Hebrews is saying, God promised through the prophets he would come to redeem his people himself. So the author of Hebrews is saying he spoke through his son. How did he speak through his son? This is the word of God who has come and entered into history. This is the one who has accomplished the will of the Father, the action of God. So again, you want to have a bigger commentary of this? It seems the author of Hebrews has a prologue of John's gospel, 1, 1, 1 through 18, going on there in his mind of who the Word is, who the Son of God is, what his mission is. And he wants us to understand that this isn't just a mere mortal who has entered history with a delayed or or, or deranged understanding of his mission, who went to the cross and is still in the grave. The author of Hebrews is saying he's come and entered history with a purpose. He's the one who created the first creation, he's the one who brings in the new creation. As he brings in a new creation, he comes with the full glory of God, the exact imprint, the exact character of God intrinsic to who he is, lays down his life, takes it up again to make a purification for sins. He's not an angel. Because the angels can't worship other angels, right? John, we have testimony of that, where John falls down and worships the angels and says, whoa, don't do that. I'm not God. Stand up. You do not worship me. That the angels understand their place. So the author of Hebrews is giving us overwhelming evidence that this is the very promise of God that was made throughout covenant history that's being confirmed in Christ. The one promise that has been made from Genesis 3.15 finds its fulfillment and confirmation in Christ. His making a purification of sin is telling us it is a definitive priestly work that he takes the unclean who are exiled from the community, cleanses them, and brings them into the community, making them worthy to draw near to God because he is a God-man. Melchizedekian priest, as the author of Hebrews, will go on to explain. So, the point of this, when, when we wrap it all up, is that there is one gospel throughout covenant history. Christ is not presenting a new message. He's not presenting a new uh, methodology of entering into the presence of God. He's not presenting a conflicted message from the prophets. What the prophets said in, in the many has been confirmed in the one with the action and work of Christ. And so then we ask that question, then, how do these Testaments relate to each other? How do we understand them? How do we know it's one gospel message? Well, the Old Testament promises are declaring for us the same God. They're declaring for us the same gospel. The promise that the Lord's redemption will be established. It will stand through the line of Judah. He will be the one who will come in the line of David will be God, will be man, and will sit on the throne forever. That's the point of these citations, telling us that even the angels of heaven worship this one clearly. This is God. Only God is worthy of worship. The angels cannot worship one another. The angels cannot sing praises of one another. That would be idolatrous. We have evidence in Revelation, John's rebuked for worshiping angels. So clearly, this is Christ who takes on the flesh, an overwhelming abundance of evidence in this chapter in Hebrews. And so when we say, well then, why is this so important that he enters history? Because if Christ does not enter history and fulfill the promises of God, it means the very line of David, the very promise that he has made uh, to have the Davidic king coming as a priest to sit upon the throne of David, has fallen flat. And the reason that's a bad thing is it means God's promise does not come to fruition. If God is not powerful enough to bring his promise to fruition, he is not God. That's the point of Hebrews. So he's saying, don't go back to the tangible stuff. Merely pictured, merely modeled what was coming. You have the essence and reality in Christ Jesus. Those were provisional things gifted by God, given to you for a time, calling your attention, uh, we could say sacramentally, to the coming of Christ, but they were not redemption. It was only in Christ where we find the true and definitive redemption. So the point of these citations, the point of this introduction, is calling to our attention that the Lord validates his promises. Christ is not a character sketch of God. He is the exact imprint. He is a character of God, the very essence of who God is. He is not a reflection of God's glory. He is the fullness of God's glory. This is why we take hold of him by faith. This is why we are assured that because of Christ we can enter into his presence. This is why we can be assured that our worship and our life is not in vain. Because we have been redeemed by the great Redeemer. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archived sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com or subscribe to our current sermon series through Most Common Podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.